Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Um, with me today is Eben Kirksey, who is an anthropologist who specialises in science and justice. He completed his latest book, The Mutant Project, as a member of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and is now an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Deakin University, Melbourne. In addition to the Mutant Project, the book we'll be discussing today, Eben is also the author of Freedom in Entangled Worlds and Emergent Ecologies. Eben, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's been a Thanks. real delight reading your book, so I'm excited about this conversation. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. So just before we dive into the questions, I want to give a little synopsis on the book. Um, so the Mutant Project opens in Hong Kong in November 2018, when Dr. Jiang Kyu He, have I pronounced his name correctly? Zhang uh, Kui He. Okay, thank you. Dr. Zhang Kui He announces to the Second International Summit on Human Genome Editing that he has, in fact, created the world's first gene-edited babies. From that initial shock and controversy, you take us deep behind the headlines of that story to reveal what is happening right now across the globe in the fields of genetics, medicine, and technology at each step asking about the values behind gene editing and what are the implications for society. It's a compelling high paced read packed with nuance about the moral dilemmas and questions raised by Dr. Hu's work. So I wonder if we might start by finding out what was your initial inspiration behind writing The Mutant Project? Uh, so I like to read science fiction and, um, you know, I was basically following this, this field of, of gene editing um, with CRISPR, this, this tool that can be used to change genes. And, and I kind of saw it coming. I saw this moment coming where science fiction was becoming reality. And um, as an anthropologist, as someone who's interested in humans and humanity and what our future uh, holds, I, I wanted to kind of be there for this history as it unfolded. So I was basically watching, you know, as, as these dreams about possible futures arrived in reality. You mentioned CRISPR there, and I think before we go any further, could you give us a bit of an intro to Genetics 101? So what do we need to know about key terms? What are they uh, that we need to know? So probably if you took a, a biology class, you remember that DNA comes wrapped in this double-stranded helix. And what CRISPR does is that it goes into the nucleus of the cell, the center of the cell, and it grabs a hold of a piece of DNA and it breaks it. And it basically does uh, targeted damage. So the technical word, and this is in part where the title of the book comes from, it, it does targeted mutagenesis. Basically, that means it makes a mutation right there at the, at the place that it grabs and breaks. Um, but one problem with CRISPR is that it isn't entirely accurate. Um, you might give it some coordinates inside of the, the genome to go do some targeted damage, but it might hit the wrong target. I, I like to think of CRISPR like a, a Reaper drone, you know, the ones that flew around Afghanistan until recently. So, so with those drones, you know, sometimes they would take out the terrorist or the so-called terrorist, um, but other times they would take out the wedding party and they would sometimes just get the completely wrong target and hit somewhere else. 
So, you know, CRISPR, after it uh, does its work, it can hang out in a cell for several weeks and it can produce additional damage beyond what was intended. So in thinking about, you know, the mutations that, that happen, you know, there's, there's a bit of unpredictability and uncertainty about what, what will result when you hit a, a, a piece of DNA with CRISPR. I, I actually I loved that uh, uh, Reaper drone uh, analogy that you made because I think it's really important terms. The language we use completely alters our perception of something, doesn't it? And the idea of gene editing, um, I think you talk about it in the book, the idea that when we edit a document, you kind of cut and paste and move things around and it's all very you've got full com control over. But as you've just explained, the, the CRISPR tool doesn't necessarily give you the, the, the full control that the language suggests. Yeah, you know, editing is a metaphor, and like any other metaphor, it reveals some things about the world, and it conceals some things. So, you know, editing, yeah, implies copy-paste. You know, if you make a mistake, if you write a sentence and make a typo, you just back up the cursor and rewrite it again. But CRISPR doesn't work that well. I mean, it, it basically goes in there and produces this damage, but if, if you're actually wanting to insert a new gene, you know, paste, um, it actually requires different and, you know, sometimes it works, but uh, it, it's not 100%. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about what these, what, what, t tell us about uh, the, the babies, the gene edited babies that we, that, that are now in the, in the world, um, Nana and Lulu, I think they are, the twins. Yeah, that's right. So basically, um, I uh, was in Hong Kong to give a talk at a, a conference. We'd all come in from all over the world um, to talk about in theory, now that we've got tools like CRISPR, how should they be used? Um, and, you know, when I'm uh, uh, arriving at the hotel where all the conference delegates are staying, uh, I learn in the elevator that someone's actually done it and he's staying there in the hotel with us. Uh, so it was kind of the breaking you know, story on CNN. It dominated headlines for about a week. And uh, he, he had announced on YouTube that uh, he'd created the world's first genetically modified babies. And um, you know, I was supposed to give a talk. We'd all you know, kind of prepared our lectures ahead of time, sent our slides, and I basically went up and tried to figure out what he'd done. Um, so on YouTube, he said that he'd created these two babies as healthy as any other. Uh, he said that he had um, basically deleted one gene that makes us susceptible to HIV and um, that these babies in theory would be resistant to the disease. But, you know, after this, uh, this summit, um, he was detained. He was uh, taken back to mainland China and initially disappeared to a black site, later sentenced to three years in jail. Um, and at that point, I kind of followed in his footsteps and tried to figure out what really happened. And one of the things I learned is that he really misled the public. The babies weren't, in fact, healthy. In fact, one of them, at that moment when the YouTube announcement is made, was still in the intensive care unit at a hospital. They were, they were born very prematurely at 31 weeks. Um, but, you know, I, I also learned that the basic science hadn't been done. I learned that the story was really about the innovation economy of China, a place that's trying to disrupt the status quo of Western modernity with uh, Asian future. And in pursuing these, these dreams of disruptive innovation, 
the basic science wasn't done along the way. So we actually never tested uh, to see if these babies were in fact resistant to HIV. It's, it's just a theory. You know, all you'd have to do is take some blood, um, you know, see if the virus can get into the blood cells. But that basic experiment wasn't done amidst all the chaos of this surprise announcement. So, so, so I think in all of that as well, the key thing here is obviously that um, my understanding is that gene editing in human embryos uh, at that point uh, was illegal. So that's the other thing, isn't it? That um, the, can you tell that's us? That's actually a really good question, right? So, so the legal landscape is super complicated. So right. uh, it depends on where you go. And one of the things I learned is that he went to Thailand, where it wasn't illegal. So, right. you know, in in Thailand, there's no real laws. You can basically, you know, there's a very um, developed IVF industry, you know, he, he went to Stevens Fertility Clinic. It has five stars on, on uh, Google Maps. If, if you want to look at their reviews, uh, maybe you too want to do some reproductive tourism there. Um, in, in China, the situation is more complicated. So, um, you know, he broke the law in a couple of different ways. Um, one law he broke was actually having uh, HIV positive men and helping them with fertility treatments. And that's a law, in my opinion, that is an unjust law. So part of what I, I did in, in you know, telling these stories is, is I got to know the backstory of, of the parents who signed up for the experiment. And it wasn't just the one couple, it was a number of couples that he recruited on social media to participate. Um, so these, these parents just had a very simple dream. They wanted to have a healthy child and they knew that Chinese law forbid them from using IVF or other things like sperm washing that would make it almost impossible for them to pass on the virus to their kids or to their wives. So they saw this, this uh, research experiment as a really good thing, a, a promising new innovation that would help them have a child. They didn't all really understand what CRISPR was or um, you know, how dramatic this experiment might be at, uh, when seen on the world stage. Um, so that was one law he broke. He helped these men have a baby. But another law was a little less clear. Um, you know, Chinese fertility clinics um, are abiding by national guidelines. And those guidelines say you can't insert a genetically modified human embryo into a woman for the purposes of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But there aren't criminal penalties associated with that. Um, basically, it's, it's, it's a guideline from the government. The clinic, you know, uh, if they did this, would run the risk of losing their license. But Dr. Ha was actually charged with something else. He was charged with medical malpractice. Um, he was a biophysicist. He didn't have training in medicine. He didn't have training in doing these kind of clinical experiments. He partnered with some doctors who did, but you know, he caused harm to these young girls. And that was what he was charged with. He was sentenced to three years in jail, basically because he, he hurt the health of, of, of a patient. And, and the book goes into some detail as to maybe the unknowns about um, why they were born prematurely, why they were kept in the intensive care unit for so many weeks after they were born. Um, it turns out that, you know, if you're just doing regular IVF and, and you know, in vitro fertilization and, and you have twins, there's a really high probability that you're going to have a premature birth. 
So, so it could be because of the known risks of existing technology rather than the unknown risks of CRISPR. And that's, at this point, maybe unanswerable. We don't know enough yet about um, the, these, these two uh, girls. Now there's actually three, three children. Um, and, you know, it, it, uh, time will tell. Um, there's a number of points you've touched upon there, and I, I, and I wonder if we can address some of those. So, so first, um, you mentioned that um, here was an offer that was being made to people who wanted to have a baby. And you could say that that is actually quite a, a vulnerable group. These are, these are people who are, who are desperate to have children and can't necessarily have children by other means. So, um, you know, I think some of the issues that you, you unpack in the book are um, how, who, who is being targeted, who is, who is being pulled into, drawn into um, participation in really early days science, untested science. I don't know if you wanted to talk to that at all. Yeah, and, and that's a story that I explore not only in China, but in the US. So, you know, before this experiment happened, um, there was another gene editing experiment done in the US about a decade earlier. And this wasn't to make genetically modified children, but to take adults um, who had been living with HIV for many years and who were actually activists. So, um, you know, basically when, when you saw the first wave of, of AIDS emerge in the US, you saw a lot of ineffective research and, you know, people were dying. They were watching their loved ones die and they started agitating for disruptive and innovative and risky research. They didn't want the same old toxic drug cocktails that weren't working. They wanted to try new drugs and new risky experiments. So, so fast forward 20, 30 years, some of these same veterans, these survivors of the original AIDS pandemic, um, you know, they signed up for this first in man gene editing experiment. And, and it's a, a story of exploitation. You know, they, they had hopes, uh, they had hopes for a cure. And there's this small Silicon Valley company called Sangamo Biotech that um, basically convinced these, these guys that they might have a cure with, with this new gene therapy. Um, the, the book goes into the, the details. It, there, there basically were some promising results from this experiment. It repaired the immune systems of people who had been basically living with AIDS for, for decades. But then this company made a bunch of money. One, one of the key scientists went to jail for insider trading and the company started pursuing more lucrative investments and more lucrative applications of their technologies. So, so throughout the book, what I'm trying to chronicle is kind of a tension between the desires, the hopes, and the dreams of, of, of patients and, and people who want to be parents, and, and the desires and dreams of investors and entrepreneurs and people who are at the cutting edge of these science, scientific enterprises, but often are putting profits ahead of patient well-being. One of the... Um... One of the elements of this, that uh, particularly that HIV activist story that emerged for, for me, was this idea that the again this this very new cutting edge science is being tested on the most vulnerable. And actually, you know, there's an argument that says, wouldn't that be brilliant if um, we were able to cure? Um, AIDS, HIV, wouldn't it be brilliant if we were able to do that as a one-time only hit? But actually, once the technology has been proven to work, again, in this more marginalized and vulnerable group, the companies move away, 
because that's not necessarily where the money is. Um, and so, again, there's this real interesting angle about social justice, I think. And um, I think you talk about experiments taking place, as you said, in Thailand or in, in different countries where the laws are less um, stringent, perhaps, um, and, and, and that there are, there are issues there. Yeah, and one of the other key social justice questions that, that I found myself exploring is, is also who gets access to these therapies as, as they're rolled out and as they're validated and proved effective. So one of the other gene therapies that I track is, is the world's first approved gene therapy, which is for leukemia. And, you know, my mom had cancer. She went through, uh, you know, chemotherapy. She lost her hair. She lost her eyebrows. And this was a new innovative, you know, disruptive treatment that will hopefully make chemotherapy, at least for some cancers, obsolete. Mm -hmm. so, so when I, I visited the place where this was developed in uh, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, I entered the, the Cancer Survivor Hall of Fame, and it was all white people. And, you know, I, I was staying in a neighborhood called Fishtown, where, um, you know, it's a place that's undergoing rapid gentrification. It's a place where the grinding poverty is, is evident. You know, hypodermic needles litter the streets, um, people without homes, you know, basically sleeping on sidewalks during the summer, just, you know, body upon body. And, you know, in this city, in this particular city, um, people of color, African-Americans, Latinos, are more likely to suffer from these kinds of cancers. But who's getting access? Uh, it's, it's white folks. And as this uh, treatment gets validated, as um, you know, the, the first uh, people um, kind of prove it effective, it's released on the market and it's given a price tag. And this price tag is unprecedented. It's four hundred thousand dollars. You know that 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 was a moment. You know, er, er, in earlier um, uh, you know controversies around drug pricing, there was a big deal made when. Uh, hepatitis C cure was rolled out for 83 grand. And, you know, since that initial gene therapy, we've seen new prices for new drugs. There's, there's now one on the market for $2.1 million. And these companies are inviting us to imagine new financial products to go along with these new technologies, to think about these treatments much like you'd think about a college loan or, or a mortgage. So you, you know, sign up to have your life saved or have your child's life saved. And then you're living with debt for 10, 20, 30 years. So, so I think, you know, it's, it's not only um, thinking about the vulnerability of the people who sign up for the, the trials. It's also thinking about new kinds of medical inequality that are emerging. You know, in, in a place like the UK, um, you know, the national health care system is going to make some decisions about, you know, can we afford this as a society? And it's, it's a big question mark. You know, if, if you start paying that kind of money on a national level, like how many of those treatments before you bankrupt the whole system? So, so the question becomes, what, what kinds of research should we be supporting as, as a societal policy? You know, can, can we even afford to, to be thinking about these kind of interventions? Or do we need to rethink how, how these projects get funded and how um, the basic research happens so that we're not producing this radical new future of you know, health and well-being for some and suffering for many. It's interesting because there's the, the medical inequality here, um, but there's also the, and the amount of money that can be made from um, 
you know, people who are willing and able to, as you say, mortgage their, their lives up against um, against their health. Um, but I think you also talk about the, the, the there are there are other uses that are non-medical. So there are the more kind of um, I don't know beauty industry almost uh, or, or, or you know less not medically uh, related um, changes that uh, can be made using gene editing and and the, the market potentially that's there for for, for that. Um, is is that is that also a concern? Yeah, totally. So um, I, I think I want to introduce a, 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 a word here, and that's eugenics. And if you go back to the origins of that word, it means good genes. And, you know, you saw eugenics uh, have a life in Nazi Germany, where they rounded up all the Jews and homosexuals and other, you know, people seen as being deviant. And in the U.S., uh, you know, uh, people who are differently abled, or even immigrants, people from Italy, people from, you know, Southern Europe were forcibly sterilized in eugenics campaigns. And, and now with CRISPR in, in other, you know, tools of, uh, uh, you know, genetic engineering, some genes are going to be relatively easy to manipulate, genes that are associated with beauty and privilege. So, uh, you know, blue eyes, that's a single it's called a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism. Change one letter of DNA and you have blue eyes or not blue eyes. Skin color is a little more complicated, but uh, you know, it's, it's something within the realm of what we can manipulate. So you know, right now there's certain markets like the US is one, um, Thailand is another, where there's not a lot of laws about um, you know, these these emergent genomic technologies. So if it's if it's rolled out in the free market, you can see a world where you know the eugenic dreams of Nazi Germany are realized, but realized in this kind of consumer utopia where people desire to be something other than themselves. And, and I think maybe it's an irony of, of these kind of technologies is that they're they're changing something about yourself, something that you might not like, or something that is stigmatized because of society, because of entrenched, you know, intergenerational legacies of racism or colonialism. Um, so, you know, one question in the book is, are, are we gonna all aspire to the same dreams and the same future? Do we all wanna look like Brad Pitt? Or, or do we wanna have more imaginative dreams? Um, one of the people I profile in the book is a biochemist from Germany um, named Gregor Wolbrang. And um, he, he uh, you know, uh, has a body that looks very different than ours. He gets around in a wheelchair. Um, he's, he's basically the result of a, a scientific accident. Um, his, his mother took thalidomide, um, a, a drug that was used to treat morning sickness. And yeah, as a result, his, his hands and arms and legs are, are different than the rest of ours. And he likes his body and insists that, you know, his body made him who he is. And um, we'll say things like, I don't ever want to walk, but I might want to fly. And I think, you know, if, if we contemplate radical new futures, like what, what kinds of dreams can, can, can we live with, but also what kinds of mistakes can we live with as a society? So, so Gregor doesn't point to, you know, the chemical company that, that manufactured this drug or, you know, his mother's doctor who prescribed it and sort of hold them to account for lived experiences of discrimination. 
he points at, dis- at society and the ways that people like him are, are, are disabled by the treatment that they receive. So, you know, if, if we enter into this new experimental moment for, for the human species, if we open up these technologies to not just homogenize what it means to be human, but maybe explore some of these ideas of science fiction. I mean, the mutant project invokes the X-Men. So if, if you go back and you look at that original X-Men movie, you're introduced to a young boy who's separated from his parents at a Nazi death camp. And then the film fast forwards and you're introduced to the supervillain, Magneto. He's seeing a new genocide on the horizon when people like him, when people who have aberrant biologies, mutations are targeted for, for destruction. So, you know, can, can we live with these unexpected futures that might be brought about by new technologies like CRISPR? That's, that's one of the, the questions that I open up in the book. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, for you, I'm really interested in this idea of kind of science fact meeting science fiction, which, which is obviously a part of, as you say, your inspiration. Um, you know, what, what was the, the most sort of shocking or surprising finding of your research? Where did you feel like we really were getting closer to that, um, to, to that science fiction world? And in what well, way? Yeah, just sticking with the X-Men, I mean, some of the things that you see in the X-Men are completely possible right now with current tools. So a lot of the characters are blue. Um, we could do that right now. We could also make green people that glow in the dark when you show shine ultraviolet light on them or, you know, orange. You, you can kind of pick the color. There's, there's a company that um, sells these fish. They're zebrafish and, um, you know, you can walk into pet stores and buy them in the States. So they have like coral red and, you know, jellyfish green, like all, all these different genes that you can take from one species into another, like humans share the same basic biology with all these animals. Um, you know, other things from X-Men are pure fantasy. You know, we can't control the weather or, you know, magnetic metal or things like this. Um, but, you know, I, I learned about a lot of military applications and um, athletic applications that are within the realm of, of possibility and even probability. So the Pentagon has a $100 million uh, research program going on right now to um, use gene editing technologies to prepare soldiers for the battlefield. Gene editing is something that's very difficult to detect. Um, so we probably have athletes competing in the Olympics right now, today, who are genetically modified. It would be very difficult to, to determine if they are mm. or aren't. But, but just like the earlier doping scandals, you know, all these people like Lance Armstrong, who, who used hormones and other things to improve their performance, there's a lot of risks that come along with these genetic modifications. So if you knock out um, a, a gene called myostatin, you're going to get huge bulging muscles, but you're also going to get smaller organs. You're likely to have a heart attack. Uh, you could target another gene called EPO, which would give you enhanced endurance, but you're also more likely to have strokes. Uh, you could take out a gene uh, that's responsible for sensations for pain. Uh, and, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of kids around the world who are naturally born with this mutation. And, you know, some of them worked as human pincushions and the old circus acts. And you, you know, you see them alive today performing. There, there was one in Pakistan who would, you know, stick a knife through his hand. And um, he died at a very young age after jumping off a roof. And you know, a lot of kids who are spontaneously born with these kinds of mutations end up harming themselves. 
end up biting off their tongues or burning themselves on the stove, not realizing that their own flesh is cooking. So, you know, as Hollywood reminds us, these special powers that might seem like a gift can actually, you know, produce a lot of problems. So I, I think in part, this book was trying to diagnose some of the problems with genetic dreams, right? So ever since Watson and Crick uh, described the DNA double helix in the 1950s, scientists and fiction writers have been dreaming about creating these genetically modified people. But genes are complicated. They're, they're trade-offs, you know? You, you, again, make yourself super strong, but more likely to have heart attacks. There's a reason why we don't all have these genes. You know, earlier dreams about finding the gene for intelligence or even height um, or the gay gene hasn't, you know, that the research just basically showed there isn't a there there. So a lot of these behaviors and, and traits, physical traits, like height is, is controlled by 180 some genes. So if you wanna have a very tall child, feed them growth hormones. That's a lot easier than <laughs> modifying them. Um, but, you know, it, it also just, you know, questions some of the fundamental values and, and what it means to be human. You know, what kinds of, of futures for humanity do we want to bring into being? And collectively, as a society, what kinds of futures do we want to oppose? These, these are big questions that we all need to be asking right now because these scientific enterprises and military enterprises are, are quietly changing the human condition, working behind the scenes. Mm. I, I, and I think that, that sort of brings me to my next question, which is, you know, is there an action that we could or should be taking on the back of your findings? Because I think that was one of the key things that came out of the book is like there is so much going on everywhere. I mean, yes, this this story starts and and, and follows what's happened in China, but this isn't a, this isn't a Chinese thing. This is happening everywhere. It's happening in the States. It's happening in the UK. It's happening in countries all around the world. So, you know, is it? Uh, you have a, a chapter about the horse already having bolted. I mean, has the horse bolted? Is there anything that we could or should be doing? Well, interestingly, that phrase is from a UK scientist, and she's talking about the United States of America, <laughs> where I'm from. And, you know, in many ways, the horse has bolted. But I, I, I think there are real opportunities to institute some new rules. So the WHO has just in, introduced a new report. Um, I think we're gonna see some new laws coming out of the United States. Um, I wasn't particularly hopeful about the Biden administration during during the election campaign, but now he's appointed Alondra Nelson, one of my mentors from Princeton, as well as Eric Lander to, to head up the White House Technology Initiatives. So we could well see some smart legislation coming out of, of uh, places like the US. But really, you know, I don't think this is just uh, the kinds of decisions that need to be made by the elite. And, and I tried to write the book in a way that didn't really prescribe policy, but sort of introduce the key problems and let readers come to their own conclusions about, you know, what kinds of features do we collectively want to embrace and what do we want to oppose? I, I really think that these are personal and political decisions, you know reproductive rights and reproductive freedom has been a key tenet of feminism and it's one that I support. But now we're entering this new realm of choices and I think we need to educate ourselves about what those choices are. You know, do, do we wanna embrace disabled futures? That's, that's one of the, the other trends that I describe in the book. It's not just about CRISPR, it's not about these new technologies on the near horizon, but these genetic technologies are already in the clinic. Doctors in the UK, in Australia, in China, in the US, 
are encouraging all pregnant women now to get blood tests to see if, if their babies um, might have some kind of genetic disability. So do we want to embrace these tests? Do we want to refuse them? You know, th these are some of the kinds of, of questions that I open up in the book. It's, it's not just a future to come, but it's, it's here and now already in the clinic. And those tests, um, am I right? That's the um, mesiosis, have I said that right? The, is it the test where you, your, the genes, your, the D, your DNA and the DNA of your unborn baby goes into the, into the, 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 B, the BGI, the, the, the Chinese genetic bank, is that right? So the old school technology is called amniocentesis. And, and with that, there's a risk of miscarriage. So it was only recommended for, you know, a handful of pregnancies when there is some kind of risk. So that involves inserting a needle and taking a fluid sample from, from um, the amniotic sac. Mm. Um, with, with these new generations of tests that have been on the market just you know, a few years now, it's a much simpler experience for the, for the mother, for the expectant mother. You're just asked to give a little blood. It's not like, you know, it's just like any other blood that you're giving you know, when, when, when you're a patient. And in that blood, they're able to see bits of fetal DNA. So they can, they can see from your baby's DNA that's in your own blood, you know, what kind of genetic future that child might have. And, you know, again, the, the, the idea that genetics is going to explain everything, I think, is, is really limited. Um, since publishing the book, I've had a number of mothers reach out to me who have disabled children and who really just celebrate the presence of this human diversity in, in their lives. So, you know, these, these um, eugenic technologies, to return to that word, you know, good genes, they're already there. And I'm trying to catalyze a conversation about, you know, how we want to use them, how we want to use them in the here and now, and also as, as new technologies in, enter the clinic in the, in the near future. So I guess, you know, one way perhaps of, of thinking about this and summarizing this is that, again, um, it, it can be easy for us um, to say, oh, science is something that happens over there. And it's, you know, it's, it's not part of the um, social justice conversation, but actually it very much is at the center of that social justice conversation and what kind of future that we want to live in and issues of equality are all now increasingly bound up with um with, with a lot of the science and and and, and medical um uh, research and and work and we need to be better educated i suppose we need to get involved in these conversations we can't say uh ah genetics i don't really know about it it doesn't really matter because actually it's here and it's happening and it, and it will change the, the the future for all of us and it, it, it will. And I, I think there's also ways that, um, and, and I touch on this in the book, that um, we're going to start to see new increasingly invasive uses of genetics by, by the government and by forensic and police forces. So that uh, genetic test that I just mentioned, the one where they're sampling the baby's uh, DNA, um, I looked at the fine print and they were actually collecting the mother's DNA at the same time. And this is, this is a company based in China that has ties to you know, the state and, and to forensic investigators. And we're, we're seeing cases all over the world, whether it's in New York, where there's police officers going door to door in minor, minority neighborhoods, asking for genetic samples. 
um, you, you know, these these kinds of, of um, technologies in the hands of police are, are producing us as as mm. subjects of, of scrutiny. And um, so the civil liberties issue, really, then it's, well. it's also a civil liberties issue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you. What, 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 what's next for you? What are you what are you working on at the moment? Can you tell us anything uh, about that? I've been thinking a lot about viruses lately. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's a pandemic happening. Um, but, but lately I'm also thinking about, um, you know, not just diseases, but other kinds of, of viral agents that are more subtly perturbing the human condition. You know, this is something that's been happening a very long time. If you look at our, our genomes, we're about 50% virus. So. I'm basically trying to understand, you know, these these new emergent um, uh, findings we have about how the human condition is, is shaped by these other forms of life. Fascinating. Hmm. Well, we look forward to hearing more on that. Thank you ever so much for your time today, Evan. It has been an absolute delight talking to you and uh, finding out more about the Mutant Project. Um, so yeah, many thanks, and uh, we will talk again soon. I'm sure. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me.